We're thinking about rescuing people today, thinking about rescuing Israel. Um, And so, uh, really, if you were going to be rescued, who would you want to be rescued by? Who would, what's your picture of someone who is going to rescue you? If you are uh, trapped in some terrible situation, who is it who, who you want to pull you out of that situation? What does it look like? Is it a father like that? A strong father who's protecting his children? Is it a knight on a shining steed? Is it a, is it a superman? Or a supergirl, I think, is coming out shortly, if it's not already out. Who is it who you want to fly in? Rescue you. Uh, it might be not a instant terrible situation. It might be a long-running thing. It might be a long-running situation in your life. Who do you want to rescue you? Uh, probably someone who's quite qualified. You know, I mean, if if uh, if I was uh, tied to a the top of the Empire State Building by somebody in that unusual circumstances, you know, I'd want someone to come and save me who was who had a head for heights. Yeah, I don't want someone to come and rescue me who was sort of standing at the edge going, I'm sorry, I just can't come and untie you. Because, you, know, you know, it's me and you, and to be honest with you, I'm scared of falling. So you just stay there and I'll get someone else. You know, it's not my idea of who I want to come and rescue me. Um, so, yeah, who would you, who would you want to come and, and rescue you? As an aside, that clip is from a company called Sherwood Pictures. They are, they're, they're a church. Uh, Sherwood Pictures are a church, and one of their ministries is making films. So they make films. They make, they've made a film called Fireproof that I would recommend to you. That one was from a film called Courageous. And there's another one coming out called The War Room, which is all about prayer. These are great films. I'd recommend them to you. But anyway... As Jai was saying, we are back into the book of Judges. We had a break last week. Graham brought us an excellent message on Christ's approach to women disciples. But we're back in the book of Judges. And if you remember in the book of Judges, we're looking at uh, the time in Israel's history when they've moved into the land of Palestine. They've been told to throw out the Nations who were there already, and they've not done that, really. In fact, they've not done it at all. And so they're getting a lot of problems. Uh, A lot of things are coming up which are uh, problems for them. And we see Israel in this downward spiral, this repeated pattern where they do bad things, God sends someone to oppress them, they cry out to God, God sends them a saviour. They all live happily ever after. Well, they don't live happily ever after. They live happy for a while. And then it all starts again. And it goes down, 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 down. Like water down, up a goal. Uh, but today we're going to look at uh, the action. Okay, we've done the introduction. Slightly bizarrely, we've done the end. And now having done the beginning and done the end, we're now going to do the middle. This is the action. We're now talking about the judges. These men and one woman who were raised up by God to save Israel. We're going to see some battles 
We're going to see an assassination. We're going to have a few laughs along the way. Who said the Bible was boring? Again, we're looking at these, as it says there, these fallen people and the faithfulness of God. We're looking at three judges. Uh, Joan read their names out for us there. Othniel, Ehud and Shamgar. Three very different men, three very different guys uh, who God used to save his people. And so we're going to call this uh, uh, the knight, the assassin and the farmer. And those are the three people we're going to be thinking about. The knight, the assassin and the farmer. First of all, let's, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you are a God who has not left us uh, in the dark about what you want us to know. You have given us your word. You've given us the Bible telling us things that you want us to know and to understand. Some of those things uh, here in the 21st century we find really straightforward to understand. Some a little harder. Father, will you give us the understanding? Will you help us to see what you want us to see? And will you help us to apply that into our lives? Amen. Uh, So first of all, we're going to look at the night. Uh, We're in verse 7 of what's going on there, the bit that's titled Othniel. And this seems to be happening after what happened in Judges 2, chapter 5. It seems to go straight on afterwards. In fact, this whole passage, just, just the bit Joan read there, seems to cover about 150 years, roughly speaking, if I'm adding it up right. Uh, 150 years after returning to the promised land. And straight up, what's going on? We've got Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord. They're breaking God's law. Specifically, they're breaking the first two of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God, and you shall not make an image of anything and worship it. Numbers one and two, and they're breaking both of them. And you can see there the gods that they have, uh, that they're worshipping, the Baals and the Asherahs. These are the gods of the Canaanites who were left behind when Israel moved in. God God said, throw them out. They didn't throw them out. And so, guess what happened? God said, if you don't throw them out, they will become a snare and a trap for you. Sure enough, that's what's happened. Yeah, uh, it's not that long since Joshua's died, and straight away, they're doing evil, worshipping Baal and the Asherahs. And this has always been a problem for the people of the earth. This has been always a problem for people who perhaps heard about God, but not necessarily worshipped him as God. It says this in Romans chapter 1. It says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. A bit further on. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. So these idols, they're things that man has made, they're little wooden statues or whatever. Little wooden statues can't save you. Little wooden statues can't do anything. They're just a thing. They're just an object. They are not God. The Israelites knew who God was. Remember, he's he's pulled them out of Egypt. He's, He's taken them through the desert. He's fed them in the desert. He's given them the promised land. They knew up here who he was, but it didn't seem to make its way perhaps down into their hearts. 
Uh, or they, they knew him as the God who does big stuff, but all the day-to-day things, well, he's not interested in the day things, he's a big God. You know, the small stuff, yeah. I'll go to these other gods because the Canaanites really like them. So, you know, we'll go with them. And sometimes people will read the Bible and and know about God. They'll know the truth of the gospel in their heads, but it never finds their way to their hearts. It never finds their way and make a difference in their life. So when we are contemplating God, when we're thinking about God, see there where it says that the... Uh, that they had forgotten about God, what we need to do is to remember about God. We remember about the gospel. We remind ourselves what the gospel is. Uh, Can I just encourage you during the week, as you're about your business, if you find yourself with a a couple of minutes where nothing much is going on, just remind yourself, say, okay, God is holy, God is good. I, I am not, I am... I am a sinner. I I need a saviour. Jesus is my saviour. He came to die for me. Because of that, I'm going to put my faith in him and I'm going to repent. Just just even if you have just a minute, just remind yourself of the gospel. It it pays back dividends because too often, like the Israelites, we forget. Too often we, in the busyness of the day, or, or even quite deliberately sometimes, we forget. Have you noticed that's why when we take communion, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. He says, do this to remember me. Remember, remember, remember. Don't forget. And so guess what? God gets angry about this. Well, you would, wouldn't you? You know, you've done all this stuff for them. You've saved them. uh, You've given them the promised land, everything, and they forget. It's a bit like, you know, when you walk into, you, you do this, you walk upstairs and you look around and you go, what have I come up here for? Yeah, it's almost like that. It's almost that quick. You know, they've walked up the stairs and gone, man, I came in here for something. What was it? What was it? What was it? Oh, I don't know. Or is that just me? Um, and so, so, yeah, God gets angry. Of course he does. He's told the people of Israel what not to do and what would happen if they did it. And so what happens? He allows this man with a strange name to invade them. Uh, translation of that name seems to be Cushion, the really bad person. The really, really bad person. And he invades them and he rules over them for eight years. And God's people God's people cry out to him. Commentator called Dale Ralph Davis points out that crying out for help doesn't necessarily mean you're sorry. Doesn't necessarily mean repentance. Um, God is good to them even though they necessarily haven't repented and that's a good job and so after eight years well, after eight years they cry out to him right? now if you know God, is that stupid or what? you know when you cry out to God why did you wait for eight years of oppression before crying out to God? They were God's people. They know all about him. Uh, this shows where their heart was. Maybe, maybe they're looking to these other small gods first to, to get rid of these invaders. 
Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's, you know, we can fix this guy. You know, we'll have him. We don't need God. We're going to have him. We can sort him out. Uh, we can fix this ourselves. Maybe it's guilt. Oh, oh man, we can't ask God, you know, because we've been ignoring him and praying to these other gods. You know, oh, he's not going to be happy with us. Uh, we haven't been really following that much recently. Maybe it was a lack of faith. Maybe they didn't think he could do it. Yeah, well, he's God, but, you know, these are really nasty guys. I mean, this guy with a funny name. You know, I mean, he's not an easy funny name, but he's got a big army. I don't know if we can get him out. Uh, or did they just see it as a last resort? Or well, tried everything else? I mean, you know, we've tried doing everything else. We better pray to God, haven't we? I wonder if God actually gets fed up of being the last resort to, to them and to us. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like we run out of options and then we pray to God. And then we think, okay, well, we've tried everything else, now let's pray to God. You know, and the Bible is full of stories where this is the case. You know, time and again, we've seen God save Israel, we've seen him done things for the impossible. I don't know about you, in your own life, you may have experienced God being good and turning up and saving you time and time again. Certainly I know that I have. And yet, too often, it's just like, oh yeah, we need to pray about it. I've forgotten about this. We need to pray about it. I've done all this other stuff. We pray about it. And that's totally the wrong way around. God is the most powerful being in the universe. He's the one who can really sort this out. We should go to him first. We should pray to him first. Then we can do the other stuff. Too often we, too often we think prayer is an afterthought. Uh, or we don't think it's the work. Well, I'll do the work. You pray about it. No, no, no. Prayer is the work. Prayer is the most important work. And by the way, prayer works. So here comes Othniel, anyway. And I've called him a knight. Okay, I've called him a knight. And that, that word wouldn't really be applicable in the, in the Bible at, at this time. Uh, but he kind of fits the bill of what we think about as being a knight. Uh, if you look back over into Judges chapter 1, we know he's married the, the daughter of Caleb. Well, he was a bit of a, a superstar because he'd, he'd like spied out the land for, for God and, and, and for Israel. Um, so he's quite well known. You know, he's, he's quite well known at his time. He's married the daughter of a very famous, a very famous man. Uh, he's already a military leader because in chapter 1 we've seen him invade this other town. That's how he got the, the, got the girl, is to go and invade the town. And by the way, anybody who is looking to get married, this is not, generally speaking, the 21st century, a good way of finding a mate, you know, is to go out and invade somewhere. And then people give you... Don't do that, guys. It, it, it doesn't work, really. It doesn't work at all, in fact. Uh, and, you know, he, he's already... Uh, because he's got the girl's hand, he also got some land and he got some wells and all that kind of stuff. So he's got a bit of property as well. So he sounds a bit to me like a knight, you know. Um, so I've called, called, chosen to call him a knight. Anyway, it makes the title work. Hopefully that's helpful. So God sends the Spirit of the Lord on him, what we now call the, the Holy Spirit. And you might know that in the Old Testament, God's Holy Spirit only came on certain people at certain time. 
Uh, that's different after Jesus had died in the second part of the New Testament where all who have repented and believed in Jesus receive the Holy Spirit. So it's very different. Uh, it's a very different time. But the Holy Spirit comes on Othniel and uh, he's going to use this to defeat the conqueror with the strange name. Sure enough, he goes out, uh, goes to war and defeats him. Hey, the night wins. Uh, verse 11, God gives Israel peace for 40 years. And somehow that seems to be linked to Othniel, to this judge, to this leader. Because when he dies, guess what? Israel are back to worshipping their idols, their non-gods. Did they worship them for, the, for those 40 years of peace? I, I think we can assume not. But I think we can also assume that when Othniel died, pretty quickly they were back to worshipping the Baals and the Asherahs. Israel had not really repented. Uh, maybe it was out of respect for this great leader, this great military leader. Uh, fair enough. Okay, that's good, but that's not the same as loving God. You know, doing something because of something your leader said, who, how they are. And so here we see that the, here in that, in that passage, verses sort of 7 down to 11, we see that cycle, that downward cycle. Israel does wrong, they're worshipping idols. God sends a neighbouring nation to attack and conquer them. Israel cries out to a God, to God. God raises up a judge, a leader. The leader defeats the enemy. Israel returns to God, has peace for a time. Repeat. Repeat, maybe 12 times. A writer called Tim Keller who points out that if we want a peace that lasts, we need a leader, we need a king who doesn't die. And partly that's the, partly that's the issue is that these, these leaders, these judges are here for a time, they're here for a season. And what we're looking for is for a king who doesn't die, for a leader who doesn't die, a leader who is with his people forever. And that leader is Jesus. That is why we follow him. Uh, but we can follow various people in our lives. You know, we look perhaps to family members who are our mentors or to work colleagues, friends, church leaders. Uh, however good or bad they are, they are imperfect. They will die. We are left perhaps questioning why they, they're leading and they're mentoring and we have no peace. Recently, in the last year, two of the men who were my real mentors in my life have died. Uh, and yeah, it makes you think, okay, in one level you think, is what they told me really got value? Is it really something that has staying power? All that is doing is pointing me towards Jesus. All that is doing is pointing you towards Jesus. When, you're, when leaders and mentors and great people die and we see that they were imperfect and they are, all it's doing is saying, yeah, but look at that one. Look at Jesus, because he's perfect. And he's got no problems. And he never dies. And he's with you forever. Don't look to me look to Jesus, don't look to them look to Jesus, don't look to that one look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus 
the one who will deliver peace and the one who will live with his people forever. Well, that was the night. What about the assassin? Ehud the assassin. Again, guess what? Israel does what's evil in the sight of God. Notice it says again. Again, it says again. Uh, notice it says the sight of God as well. That's, folks, that's the only thing that, that's the only judge who really matters in, in that way. You know, we're, we're clever people. We can come up with justifications for what we do wrong. You know, well, uh, the reason why I told that little lie was because, in actual fact, it saved them from. God sees through all that. He sees through all that straight away. It's his sight that matters, not ours. Uh, you're not going to fool God. You will never fool God, ever. Don't think, don't even try it. Um, so well, guess what? God is angry. This time he sends a king called Eglon. And his Moabites, Moabite is to the, Moab is to the east of Israel, and so they invade along with some friends, the Amorites and the Amalekites. Amalekites, Amalekites. They attack Israel. And they capture this place called the City of Palms. That's another name for the City of Jericho, which is sort of into Israel a little bit. Uh, and and we actually assume that the City of Palms at Jericho is where this next piece of the action takes place. Uh, this assassination. Uh, Eglon keeps Israel uh, subjected under the thumb for 18 years. Say it quickly. That, that sounds short. Yeah, 18 years. Say, that's from here back to 1997. Hands up anybody who can even remember 1997. I don't remember 1997. Uh, yeah, that's a long time. It's not just a, a quick thing, you know. Um, and although he might be overweight, he's no pushover militarily, I mean, he's, and politically, he's got them well and truly under the thumb. The, the, the text makes it seem like he's a bit of a jokey character, perhaps. We'll come on that in a minute. But, you know, he's oppressed the nation for 18 years. He's no, he's no slouch. So God raises up an assassin, and in fact, a left-handed assassin. Apologies to anybody, and there's going to be a reasonable number of you here who are left-handed. I know Denise is left-handed, just to pick on my wife for a moment. Uh, sorry, babe. At this time, if you were left-handed, you were seen as being less powerful or a bit inferior when it came to things. Again, I'm not saying that's how it is. That's just how people saw it back then. Uh, maybe a little bit second class. And, and that sounds weird to us now, doesn't it? That sounds kind of old-fashioned. And very unusual. But I was remembering when I was writing this, my dad was saying that when he was in school, he was left-handed, but they made him learn to write right-handed. It was seen that you had to be right-handed. So it's actually not that long ago in that, in that way. Uh, anyway, Ehud, he's going to prepare for this assassination. He makes a short sword. It's about 18 inches long. Uh, and conceals it under his clothes. But... As well, because he's left-handed, he conceals it on the other side from what everybody else would be putting it. They'd be putting it on his left side. He's putting it on his right side. And so he's got this premeditated plan to assassinate the king. Why didn't he do, why didn't he do what the other judges did? 
whistle up an army and go and kill everybody, right? He's already got the Spirit of God with him. Don't know, don't know. Speculating maybe Israel wouldn't have been comfortable following someone who was left-handed until they'd kind of like proved themselves a little bit. Just a bit of speculation. We don't know. Uh, he needs to inspire Israel before they go and kill 10,000 Moabites. Well, you would need a bit of inspiration, wouldn't you? Let's be fair. So, he leads the delegation going to what we think is, is Jericho. He's taking that year's taxes. It might be money. It's more likely to be grain and sheep and whatever else. And, uh, and this is where the story gets a bit ironic. Even humorous. Now, you know, you might think it's a bit crude. I don't know. Some of the, the next bit, you know, it's a bit violent. A little bit of toilet humour, I don't know. But to me, it's funny. But what can I say? You know, I'm someone who, when the scene in Blazing Saddles comes on, where they're sitting around the fire eating beans, I just laugh a lot. I'm sorry if you know that film, you know what I'm talking about. Or in Despicable Me, with the dark gun, I laugh a lot. I'm sorry, that's just my sense of humour. So I can't. I find this quite funny, but anyway. Um, so, what's going on? Ehud, he's gone to Jericho, he's delivered the stuff, he starts leaving, but then he, then he sort of leaves everyone behind and sneaks back and says, I've got a secret message for you. And, and all the Israelites who are reading this, by the way, afterwards, are laughing at this point, because they know what's going on, right? Uh, we're English and live in the 21st century. So we don't do a lot of laughing, to be honest with you, when we should. These guys are having a real chuckle at this point because they know what's coming up and they know what's going to happen. So all the Israelites are smiling knowingly and boy has Eglon got a surprise coming to him. Eglon and his guards, and this is the irony, yeah. Eglon and his guards are on the lookout for people with swords strapped on this side because everybody's right handed right and everyone draws the sword that way right so they're looking for that side or if it's concealed they're looking for unsightly bulges under the clothing on this side you know if you'd, if you'd uh, stuffed an 18 inch sword down your trousers or whatever you know they're looking at that side to say but you see Ehud is a left hander He's a left-hander, so he's put it on the other side. So all the guards are looking on that side. They should be looking on the other side. Silly guards. Silly Eglon. Ha-ha. Uh, then, oh, concealed weapon. Uh, then, Eglon, uh, is saying to Eglon, I've got a secret for you. Now, who doesn't like a secret? Yeah, who doesn't like a bit of juicy gossip? Who doesn't like a bit of knowledge? Whether you're a king, whether you're anybody, you like a good bit of stuff. So, you know, yeah, we'd all go, ooh. If someone said to you, I've got a secret, do you want to know it? Hands up, who says no? He knows he's got him, so he's like, ooh, okay. You know, like we are, ooh, okay. Um, why did Eglon not just say, oi, left-handed Israelite? On your way, thanks for the taxes, I appreciate it, but get out. Who do you think you are? Because he looks harmless. Right, he's harmless, he's a left-handed guy, he's not as strong as right-handed guys. he hasn't got a weapon, he's on his own. 
He's already given me the taxes. He's harmless. He trusted him. He's not dangerous. So Egon says, like you do when someone's doing a secret, like Egon like, leans forward so he can hear what he's going to say. He doesn't want the guards to overhear it because it's a secret. He doesn't want the other servants to hear it. It's a secret. So he, he leans forward. All the Israelites leading the story, laughing away. They know what's coming. He's leaning forward. Why would you be leaning forward into an assassin? So he leans forward. You know, maybe Ehud does the, maybe does, the, does the thing before he tells it. Maybe he does the you know, to emphasise the point it's a secret, I don't know. Uh, so he leans forward and Ehud gives him the message. But it's not the, it's a message from God, alright, but it's not something you say. It's 18 inches of steel in his tummy. That's the message of God, buddy. All the Israelites having a good laugh. The judgment of the Lord. A pointed message from God. Do you get what I did there? The, they're in the upper room. They're in the upper room of his palace, his private chambers. Nobody's around. There's only Eglon and Ehud. He's standing up. Ehud, sorry, other side, isn't it? Left-handed. Let's pull it out. Left-handed. He wasn't expecting that, was he? He was not expecting that. All the Israelites listening and having a laugh and a chuckle. The whole blade sinks in, because he's, he's a large king, so the whole blade sinks in. Now at this point, the, the humour really does drop another level. It is, at this point, we really are down in the toilet humour level. And I apologise if this is a bit, you know. But it drops down, and I don't want to offend anybody at this point, or be distasteful, but uh, this is how the ancient Hebrews saw it. it it says here, you know, basically it says, Eglon's bowels discharged. Okay? I'll leave it there. You know what I'm saying. Uh, Ehud sees his chance. There's still no one around. Hits the door, locks it, shuts it, it's his private chambers, locks it, shuts it, and he does a runner. He's off. Why aren't the guards following him? He's just assassinated their king. They don't know. They've just seen the man leave the chamber, shut the door. They haven't heard anything. Uh, so guards are all like, okay. And he's off. Uh, they don't realise that this left-handed assassin has struck and has done him down. And again, can you see the humour in this? The, the servants are all standing outside, wondering, shall we go in? Now, come on, you've done this, haven't you? You can't tell me you've not stood outside a bathroom that has been occupied for quite a while and started thinking to yourself, what are they doing in there? You know, I mean, I mean they've been in a while now. You know, they, did they take the paper in with them to read or something? You know, they're sitting there reading the paper, and you know, because it's a bit, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit what now. That's how we are normally. Never mind if it's a king. Oh, it's a king. You're not going to just, you know, very important man. You're going to burst in and, and, you know. And they say, you know, he must be relieving himself, you know. Again, sorry, toilet humour. Maybe they can smell that a little bit, you know. Okay, we know what's going on. Uh, uh, 
you know, don't want to interrupt him yet again. You know, there's me thinking blazing saddles. You know, don't, you know, all the Israelites again reading the story, having a good laugh. That's funny. Um, and they wait. He says they wait to the point of embarrassment. They wait until they are absolutely just dying inside that they're going to have to go into the king's private rooms when he might be still, shall we say, indisposed. So they unlock it, they peek in. They peek in round the door and they realise it's not good. It's not good. The king is dead. And you know, folks, people say that God does not have a sense of humour. I'm sorry. You read a passage like that, God has a sense of humour. That is for sure. Even in the middle of Israel's being oppressed by this king, God wants us to take a moment, lighten the mood, and have a good chuckle. But, but some people will say, look, this was a cowardly act. This is not the act of a leader. This is not the act of a leader of God's people. This is an assassination. This is underhanded. Remember, he'd already been called by God to do this. One writer comments this. He says, Ehud came forward to uphold the rights of God and to take vengeance on his behalf against the Moabites and their king. It is in in this light that his actions have to be judged. Even though the Moabites were the Lord's instrument for punishing Israel, they still remained his enemies and they had no right to occupy his sacred land and to oppress his sacred people. Well, would Israel have followed Ehud if he'd not first killed Eglon? I don't know. Uh, in one way, it doesn't, we don't really need to know. Uh, Ehud assassinates Eglon. He goes up, he blows the trumpet, and they follow him into battle. And they go and they capture the, the crossings on the River Jordan, where you would cross over the river to get from Israel into Moab. And so this cuts off the Moabite army. They're on the west bank. Moab's on the east bank. They want to go home now. The king's dead. But they can't because Israel's captured the crossing. And there's a battle and they kill, it says, 10,000 of their soldiers. 10,000 of their strong soldiers. Result. God again gives Israel peace. This time for 80 years. And although these periods of peace seem quite long, later on in the, the book, these Periods of time gets much shorter, if at all. Uh, but again, it doesn't last. It doesn't last. See there in verse 31. Uh, we only have one verse on this next judge, Shamgar, but it is still informative. And so here is Shamgar the farmer. Uh, one verse. No background, no details, not even happy ever after really. Uh, You compare that to Ahud, he got loads and loads of verses, but again he was quite funny, you know, he was a lot of jokes in there and that sort of stuff. This guy, one verse. Uh, But still instructional, still things we can learn from it. We assume Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord again. Uh, 
Uh, we assume that God sends someone to invade Israel. May have invented them, may not, but certainly it says the Philistines here are the, are the enemy. Different enemy again, three different enemies. Uh, we don't know how long they were a problem for. It doesn't say. Uh, we do know, it does seem that Shamgar led Israel after Ehud. Okay, we've got that. Um, but the emphasis seems to be on the weapon he used and the extraordinary result. Now, I don't know if you know what an ox goad is. An ox goad is not an everyday object these days. Uh, it's the thing that the guy who's ploughing with the cattle, with the cows, with the oxen, uh, he's standing at the back, oxen on the front, he's got a long stick with a pointy bit on the end. And if they go off one way, he gives them a prod one way, and if they go off the other way, he gives them a prod the other way. So they come back on track. So they plough a straight, a straight line. So it's a, basically a very long pointy stick with quite a small point on the end of it, a small blade on the end of it. And with this, so it's not, it's not like a sword, or it's not like a bow and arrow, or anything like that. It's a farmer's tool. It's a farmer's implement. Now, who else is going to try and kill 600 Philistines with a farmer's tool other than a farmer? Yeah, he's taken something that's near to hand. That's why I say he's called a farmer. And so, uh, the Philistines are causing problems. He goes out. The extraordinary result of, with a humble farmer's tool, he, he strikes down 600 Philistines. And that is a lot of Philistines. And so he's, he's not a knightly guy, he's not an assassin, he is a regular farmer. In fact, some scholars think he may not even have been an Israelite. His name was not uh, was more typical of the nations around them. It doesn't matter. God uses him to save Israel. We don't know how long he led Israel for uh, afterwards. Just click over to Judges chapter five for me. Probably just a page in the Bible, in your church Bible, if you are. Uh, Judges chapter five, verse six. It does refer to him again here in the days of Shamgar son of Anath uh, the roads were abandoned so, so there, there is a sense here that he, he did an implication perhaps he led Israel for some time we don't know how long uh, but the judge Deborah who came after him is, is referring to him there the days of Shamgar so what you know, okay God has worked here through three very different men. Three very different things. Now you're going to have to excuse the slides here. I've changed the order of my talk slightly, so I'm just going to jump ahead. Don't look at the first point. Uh, God works through three very different men. Why? God loves diversity. He loves using different things to show not how, how great they are, but how great he is. Whether you think about the apostles or the kings of Israel, the other judges, they're all different folks. All of them are imperfect. 
All of them have flaws. All of them have uh, issues. And some of them you're even thinking, God, why did you even bother with them? I mean, what a loser. Um, But God does this because he is good. He is powerful. That's why he does it. Uh, Too often, so often, God teaches us he's going to use the weak and the unlikely in life. Because that way it is clear that God is so good and so holy and so powerful and so mighty and so perfect and so merciful and so gracious. But that also means he can use anybody. Praise God. Uh, He can use all of us. And he does use all of us. Just turn with me, turn to the New Testament in your Bible, to 1 Corinthians. Some of you may know this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1. And reading at verse 26. Yeah. This is the Apostle Paul writing. The Apostle Paul himself, remember, a guy who arrested people, dragged people off uh, to prison in the early days of the church. He himself had a thorn in the side. We don't know what that was, but some problem he had. Anyway, what does it say there? Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. He does it so all the praise and all the glory goes to God. He does it so he can use all of us. That's good news, isn't it? If 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 he didn't, none of us would be able to take part. None of us would get a look in, would we? If he's only going to work through the holy and the righteous, then none of us would be involved because, and our lives would be empty because none of us are perfect. Othniel was not perfect. Ahud was not perfect. Shamgar was not perfect. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. But God chooses to love the broken. He chooses to, which is all of us, not the deserving, which is none of us. He loves the fallen, which is all of us. And even though we're fallen, he's faithful. That's what it says on, 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 our, on our logo. And that love is so dramatic that he sends his only son to die for us. To die for the broken, which is all of us. So that when we put our trust in him, not in the idols of our life, that we are saved. However messed up and broken your life is, God can use you and will use you if you put your faith in him. It will be for your good and for his glory. If the world wants success, it chooses the best, doesn't it? Uh, If you're building a football team, you choose the best players and the best coach. If you're building a college, you Choose the most intelligent academics. If you're in a business, you want the best managers 
and the best staff. Uh, who picks the worst? Who picks the broken? Who picks the strange? Uh, God does. God does this. Praise God. And, and does he do this because he's a good God? Yes, partly. I suppose he's a good God and that's partly why he does it. Does this because he, uh, he loves us and has compassion on us? Yes, I think that is partly true. Um, does he do this because he's politically correct and he wants to have a policy of uh, equality and that sort of stuff? No, because those are human inventions, not God's inventions. Uh, he does it to point to God, to say, you are not strong enough, but I am. You are not intelligent enough. I am. You are not moral enough. I am. You are not good enough. I am. You are not holy enough. I am. I am. I am. Look to me as your God and your Saviour and no other. Don't follow those idols. Don't follow those other leaders. Look to me. The opposite of what we so often do. What does all this tell us about God? Why three different people? To point us towards Jesus. These are not the men who we would choose to rescue us. That guy on the, on the clip is not the guy who we should choose to rescue us. Our dissatisfaction with them, our dissatisfaction with other earthly leaders, with politicians, with business leaders, with church leaders, with uh, leaders in our culture, with pop stars, whoever it is, that dissatisfaction points us towards Jesus, our Saviour, the perfect situation. He knows our situation. He knows how urgent it is we need to be rescued. And he knows how to save us. He knows the cost of saving us. And he's prepared to pay it. He's prepared to die for me. And to die for you. Have you ever done that? You said, have you changed the words sometimes in the Bible? Instead of saying, uh, Jesus died for us. Try and say Jesus died for dot 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 for the, your name. Jesus died for Ian Fenton. That's a different thing. Jesus died for us. He was prepared to pay that price. He has already paid that price to save you and call you to himself. And so, if you are here and you are a Christian, then praise God for that. Remember that. Put that at the centre of your life. Remember that God is going to use you and do something with your life. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're glad that you are here. There's nowhere else we'd rather that you be. It is time for you to put your trust in this leader who will not let you down. It is time for you to put your trust in this king who will rule perfectly. It is time for you to say, yes, I will follow. It's time for you to say, although it may be a daunting thought, I will put my trust in this king who will never die. I will put my trust in this Saviour who is perfect. I will put this trust, I will put my trust in this one who can save me because, folks, there is no one else who can save you. There is no one else who can save you. You cannot save yourself. 
Leaders can't save you. You have to put your trust in Jesus Christ. You know there might even be some inappropriate laughs along the way. Let's pray.